welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking all things high performance and sprints, and I'm really excited. We've got two members of the Altus world-class performance team, Dr. Jazz Rendawa, the lead therapist, and Jason Hetler, the lead strength and power coach, and they're going to touch on a lot of different things today, such as using warm-ups to develop athlete norms, improving your movement literacy, which if you're not familiar with that term, then definitely stay tuned. Dr. Jazz will dive into the importance of sleep and give you a target, a minimum target for weekly sleep for your athletes. And they'll also weigh in on the debate between technique and power for really improving sprint performance. So as usual, I'm going to leave my take-homes and notes in the page that hosts this talk in my layups section as well as the performance hacks. And really, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal episode. These guys are just a wealth of knowledge. So I, uh, I hope you enjoy Jazz, Jason, thanks so much for uh, joining us today from uh, balmy Arizona. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> doing good, Mark. Thanks. Real good. Thanks for having yeah. us. We're, uh, we're struggling up here in the uh, you know minus 10 and snow and everything else, and you guys are seemingly living the dream down there at all this uh, performance in Arizona. So tell us a little bit about how you both, uh, you both got there and, and the kind of work that you're doing. All right. Well, uh, this is Jason here. Um, I'm from Michigan originally, so I finished my undergrad up there uh, about three years ago in exercise science and was looking for opportunities beyond that. So uh, it was recommended to me to look into an internship here, which at the time we were still called the World Athletic Center. Um, So I came down for seven weeks in the spring of 2014 as an intern, fell in love with with everything, Uh, the coaches, the athletes, the, the philosophies, and was fortunate enough for the timing to work out for them to offer me a, a position to come back for the next season. Um, so that's really how I ended up at, at Altus. I'm the uh, strength and power coach, so my main role is in the weight room. I also spend the mornings on the track with our pro and emerging elite sprint groups. Awesome. And you guys have a pretty integrative approach there, uh, right, Jess? So can you tell us you know, your end and how you guys intermix together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the defining features of what we do uh, at Altus, which is a little bit different from other uh, organizations, is um, subscribing to this idea of the performance trinity, uh, which is what performance therapy is really all about. That trinity incorporates three different entities. Uh, one would be the athlete, and it's, of course, an athlete-centered model. The other two would be the sport coach himself or herself uh, and the therapist. Uh, and together, these three individuals will work um, almost in unison, if you will, uh, to help create uh, an opportunity for the athlete to express her full potential of what we need to do. Uh, what this looks like uh, on a day-to-day basis then is therapists working in unison with uh, our coaches, um, albeit a uh, sport coach or like Jason, a strength and power coach, and we're fully integrated into the system. So when Jason's at the track, the therapists are at the track, uh, and of course your, your athletes are there as well. So. What we, what we aim to do is really have this, um, have this model set up so that we're able to affect change immediately uh, versus you know, a clinical model where you might have an athlete who goes to a practice, uh, then you know, they come see you, uh, and there's a time gap between their 
communication between say a clinician or their therapist and the coach is a little bit slow. The athlete will leave you might be 24 hours later before he's at practice again and seeing any, any change from your, your inputs. And so what we try to do is really eliminate that and look to minimize any type of training gap in what we, uh, what we prescribe to athletes. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I know we still see today in elite sport, you know, people and medical teams working sort of in silos, like you mentioned, kind of um, one therapist and getting treated and then off to the coach or whatnot. So, you know, for you guys, what does a day look like then for, uh, you know, an athlete that's coming in to sprint? I mean, how does it, uh, what does it look like in terms of, uh, you know, when Jason sees him or yourself or this this integrated model? Yeah, so... um Right now, we'll, let's say that an athlete start time is at 10 o'clock in the morning. At 9.30, they'll show up at the track and we'll go through a therapy pre-check. This pre-check is just a, you know, a chance for the therapist to really just get their hands on the athletes. Um, I deal with any um, issues from, say, the previous day or any key areas that we want to investigate prior to their warm-up. Once that 10 o'clock rolls around, they get into their warm-up, which will be led by Jason uh, along with the coaches. At that point, the therapists are watching warm-up and, and really using a notational analysis to kind of assess how an athlete's moving, what their pattern's looking like, and, and where they are um, compared to their normal bandwidth. We'll then go through our training session, uh, and that could be you know, either extensive uh, or it could be a short, depending on where we are in the training cycle. Once they're done with their training session, we'll head back uh, to the weight room and they'll go through uh, their lift, whatever was prescribed. And again, Jason's the one who's leading that. Uh, on the floor with them will be, again, the therapists and the coaches. Uh, therapists are, are expected to help um, in the weight room as well. And then once that uh, they're done their lift, um, if there is any uh, additional therapy work that needs to be provided kind of in, in more of a clinical setting where we can spend maybe a little bit more time with the athletes, We'll have them do that, or we'll have them go through uh, any type of regeneration schemes that we have planned for them. Awesome, awesome. Um, and now, Jason, on, on your side as the you know strength coach, there, when you're looking at the warm ups and seeing, and communicating with Jazz, I mean, obviously you've got your plan on what you guys what you want the guys to do um, for their lifts and whatnot. But can you speak to a bit of you know what you might pick up on certain days and how you might call some audibles and change things up a little bit with your athletes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it all starts, you know, the moment they walk into to the practice facility. Uh, we're, we're constantly watching just to see how they're moving, what their energy levels are like. Um, I'm constantly paying attention to who's on the table and uh, and even in particular what, what Jazz might be working on. And then for really starting with a warm-up, we do essentially the same warm-up almost every day. Sometimes we'll go back and forth between two slightly different warm-ups. But this allows us, as Jazz kind of alluded to, to determine athlete norms and, and how they typically move. And then uh, when they're getting away from those norms and, and too far on one end of the spectrum, it starts to really stand out for both the coaches and the therapists. Um, whether it be a, a technical issue or a mechanical issue or fatigue levels, we're able to start picking up on these things and then make any adjustments that we may need to make. Uh, and then in the weight room, I think it, it helps tremendously that I'm at the track and and the, the folks from the track are also in the weight room. So there's a ton of collaboration and it's, and it's truly integrated. And that way I know if they have a, a really big session on the track and a couple of particular athletes hit that session really hard and have a great day, 
there might be a little bit of residual fatigue once we get in the weight room. So maybe we'll adjust a little volume or, or switch some things around to accommodate for that. And are there certain things? Can you walk us through a couple of the things in terms of your warm up, like in, for elite sprinters? Are there um, some of the techniques that you guys use for the warm up? Yeah, it's a pretty lengthy warm up, uh, anywhere from from thirty five to to fifty five minutes. Um, we we utilize kind of the same structure each day, and then we'll manipulate slightly within that. Uh, so we start with the torso activation, just just getting things fired up, um, fairly general in that regard. And then uh, work our way into some more specificity. We go in through dynamic mobility, where we're uh, just big, open, bouncy movements, getting them warm. On acceleration days, we'll add in some accelerations at a very low intensity in between each of those drills. Um, and that's anywhere from six to 12 drills there. Uh, dynamic flexibility comes next. So it's a series of different leg swings, making sure we got full range of motion through, uh, through hips and shoulders and, and everything's moving smoothly. And then we get more specific into sprint drills. So a lot of AWOC variations, uh, high knee variations, whatever you want to call it, through different cadences and, and different environmental challenges. Uh, again, if it's an acceleration-themed workout, we'll add some accelerations in between each of those drills just to allow for some additional repetition for those athletes and, uh, and hopefully some additional transfer from the drills to the sporting movement. And in terms of uh, sprinting, I mean, growing up when I was watching sprinting, we had, uh, you know, the Ben Johnsons, the Donovan Baileys of the world that were sort of a classic, what you would think of as a classic sprinter build. And, of course, in the last decade with, you know, Usain Bolt and, you know, longer levers, taller. And, and now, obviously, you guys have the, you know, amazing young Canadian there, Andre Grass down there, who's also a different, you know, sort of a more slight kind of whippet type uh type builds so can you speak to a little bit of the different body types and maybe does that change at all in terms of what you're doing in the weight room uh how does that impact the sprinting yeah um so i'll speak to that maybe from a therapy standpoint um really what we what we see is is maybe two ends of the spectrum where i like to classify an athlete as being very mechanically driven so these are the guys that are, are quite muscular and will use those um abilities to to their benefit and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have guys who are a little bit more fascially driven, and this is like Andre. So they're not they're not big and bulky, um, but they're they have this elastic component to them that allows them to to harness that energy and, and kind of you know transmit force uh, on the track, perhaps a little bit differently than someone who's mechanic. Now, of course, there's there's going to be hybrids of each, uh, and this example is really just to drive home the point. Uh, in addition to that. Anthropometrics have definitely changed. We have uh, some athletes who are, you know, quite, quite large, like taller, um, longer levers, and their their ability to transmit force is slightly different than, say, someone who's um, a little bit shorter. Um, so yeah, there there definitely is a spectrum of athletes, and the way we we need to assess them perhaps becomes a little bit different um, depending on that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, I mean, definitely, obviously, in basketball, we see that sort of tension being a big part of, uh, you know, lean guys being able to get up and being quick. So that's really interesting about, uh, you know, with Andre as well. Um, now, as we, you know, we've heard a lot from, from other coaches in terms of this idea of power being essential to learning the right sprinting technique and being almost more important than even the technique. Can you guys speak to that a little bit in, in, in your athletes? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. Um, and it reminds me of uh, a recent post that came out on Stu McMillan's blog with his strength series and, uh, 
an addition additional part there from Jeremy Witherspoon, who's a speed skater, was a speed skater. Now he's a coach in Norway. Um, arguably one of the greatest speed skaters of all time, but he uh, he hypothesizes that his technique was was so sound because he he learned it without having any strength levels essentially with no background in training um he wasn't able to just power through poor technique in order to be fast it, it really re required that he had proper technique and he was applying force in the proper directions in order for him to be fast and and i thought it was a really interesting concept um and then just to, to, br to bring it around it's technique really trumps all especially for us with the population that we're with um, these guys are already quite powerful and strong the, the difference that's going to be made in, in their performance is going to come from from changes in technique so we have intense sessions with uh, with a lot of coaching and we're just trying to hone in on all these differences that we can make through through the technical model that's interesting. I mean, I've heard, um, you know, yeah, similarly experts like, you know, Derek Hansen mentioned that when he was sprinting at school, he'd put all his time in, in the gym, you know, Olympic lifts, really building up the, the amount of, of mass he could, he could move. And then, you know, the, the change in his total sprint time, I forget what he mentioned, but it, it dropped, you know, not nearly as much as he'd hoped with all that sort of, uh, gym work. Now, obviously gym work's important, but, um, can you talk about the balance there between, you know, developing, power and speed without inherently having to to move weights or, or using the track to do that i'd say it comes from both really um but i think a common misconception is that is that you need to use weights heavy weights weights above 85 percent uh in order to get strong and powerful but in reality dynamic effort lifts in the weight room will will bring about those strength levels and and there may not be a lot of published research to show it, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence from a lot of successful coaches who've implemented programs uh, really with, with very little emphasis on maximum strength. Uh, so I think, I think it's a spectrum really when it comes down to it. And with developing athletes, you might have an opportunity to find more performance gains by, by going from a strength approach. Uh, and then as they progress into more elite, taking more of a, a technical approach. But that being said, with the developing athletes, I think too many coaches ruin their long-term development by, by chasing these quick numbers, uh, whether that be through the weight room or, or on the track or the field or whatever it might be. So I, th I think it's a fine line, and, and, it's a, and it's a difficult balance. But for us, it all, it all comes back to the, to the track. Yeah. So everything we do in the weight room is just to supplement the work that we're putting in on the track. I would say from a developing athlete standpoint, um, uh, it's crucial to do a needs analysis to find out what specifically you think that athlete needs to address. Um, there's tons of, of research now that you know supports the idea that maximum strength work is is going to have uh, a translation onto you know velocity and being able to sprint. But what we need to be careful of is you know the populations that they're they're actually using in these studies in addition to the long-term effects. So what are the longitudinal studies that show if you continue to work in the max end spectrum, what happens to say fiber flips? Now, to my knowledge, there, there is no, no paper that shows that you start to get more oxidative qualities 
which inherently to me mean the rate of force development is a little bit slower. However, the, the peak that you're gonna have from a force development standpoint is obviously going to increase. But where, where does that lie in your spectrum of what you're trying to um, look for in your athletes? So understanding that a needs analysis is going to be a key, I think is a big, a big takeaway for, for coaches to, who are working with the uh, developing athlete. Yeah, that's some great advice because I know a lot of, um, you know, especially young strength coaches, you know, chasing that, that board, that PR or max lift board is, is something that they often use as a way to assess the progress of a young athlete. And it sounds like from what you guys are saying that there's a, obviously there's a place for that and it's important. But, uh, you know, the more elite someone gets, then the more specific with their needs and, of course, even uh, technique, et cetera, becomes Trump's all, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah. Now, in terms of your elite sprinters, if we shift over to other areas of sort of performance leaks, if we look at this integrative approach of whether it's um, things that you do on the recovery side, things that we do on the nutritional side, or or in terms of sleep, et cetera, um, can you speak to any of the you know techniques or, or things that you guys are implement uh, with your guys? Yeah, from a recovery standpoint, we leak, we like to keep it quite basic, to be honest. Um, there, there's lots of things that we can do, um, but often just chasing low-hanging fruit is, is something that goes overlooked perhaps, and I think sleep is one of those. Um, we would like to prescribe that each athlete has, uh, you know, at minimum 70 hours of sleep a week, uh, and which doesn't seem like a, a task that should be difficult, but again, once you start working with, you know, uh, this age group, even, even getting that can be sometimes a, a little bit of a challenge. Um, in addition to that, we do like to uh, educate our athletes on proper nutritional choices. Um, we're fortunate that we have a series called Altis U, in which uh, one of our coaching staff, and it kind of rotates through, we'll, we'll do a presentation for the athlete, uh, athletes rather, and it will kind of encompass uh, various topics, one of which would be nutrition, uh, one of which would be recovery, uh, and, and what they're doing. And what we're trying to accomplish with that is making uh, our athletes um, have actionable intelligence. And so they're not just going to go through this process and, and not have any say or not really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, I think increasing the athlete's uh, IQ as to what's involved in being a professional athlete is uh, one of the more crucial things we can do. Um, anything you would want to add to that, Jason? I, I think it's... Uh... It's, it's sometimes it's challenging with some. Um, we see a lot of guys who are very on top of, of their lifestyle, and they're eating all the right things at the right times, and they're keeping sleep journals. Uh, and then and then we see elite athletes who eat burgers and fries and and stay up till two a.m. playing video games, and uh, but are still still good at their craft, still extremely good at their craft. So it's a, it's an interesting topic but but our approach is just as jazz said educate the athlete as much as we can um equip them with, with everything that they need in order to be successful and then hope that in the uh 18 19 hours of the day that we're not with them that they're doing the right things that's great i mean it sounds like you guys are helping the your athletes build habits, which is, you know, as you guys know, is especially on the nutrition front, is just a major, major fundamental of, of, of building those habits so deeply ingrained in them that they just get up and that's what they eat and that's what they do. And, and, and like you mentioned, Jazz, that sets you up for that, you know, being a professional into the long term. And I love what you mentioned there around, you know, we call them the basics, but these sort of fundamentals are so crucial. And some of them are, 
you know, those easy wins, like you mentioned, of just getting things like the right amount of sleep in that are so fundamental, especially for young, you know, adolescent, um, you know, young adult athletes is, is, is really key. Now, I know with a lot of our guys, you know, the phone is, is definitely an issue or trying to minimize a lot of that late night screen time, Instagram, Twitter, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, any strategies that you guys have or, or little tips for, for other strength coaches and young trainers out there to help with their athletes? <laughs> yeah, to be to be honest, when, when the athletes are on the table, it's a little bit of a dictatorship, phones away. They need to be part of the process, not just this bystander. Um, we don't think therapy should, should be passive. Love it. That's great. Yeah. Our athletes are unique in the sense that they're, they're very in tune to their bodies and their ability to report uh, is like no other that I've experienced before. Uh, and so to, to really help that, uh, that process get around, we, we don't want them to have their phones um, on the table. We definitely don't want them to have their phones in the weight room. Now, that being said, a lot of these athletes are, are still trying to um, you know, secure say contracts. And so social media plays a big role into that. So there, there's maybe a, a little bit of a fine line of what we need to, um, allow them to do, uh, in far as in terms of, uh, self promotion and whatnot. But I agree that the cell phones and screen time, it's, it's you know, very difficult to manage. Uh, but we try to do our best <laughs> when they're with us at least. Yeah, it's a tough one. And I mean, one of the little hacks we use here, especially with being so dark in the wintertime, is obviously trying to get the kids to even use their phones first thing in the morning. You know, that blue light can serve as a bit of a proxy for sunlight and help with some of the, the phase shifts versus when they do use it in the evening. Um, you know, obviously really tough for, for that regenerative sleep, even if they don't have a trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. So that's uh... – now, if we, if we shift gears a little bit, guys, I want to – you know, give some of the listeners, you know, strength coaches, docs, uh, therapists, uh, enthusiasts here who are athletes in other sports. If you guys can maybe speak to, you know, the benefits of sprinting, you know, is sprinting beneficial for all other athletes? Uh, is that something that, that should be incorporated into programs for, you know, hockey players, basketball players, etc.? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. Um, right now we're doing some consulting with a, with a professional baseball team down here. Um, and, and I think it's starting to, to take a shift where people are starting to realize the, the beneficial effects. But just from a standpoint of, of force production and, and angles of force production and, and awareness of your limbs and space, uh, as well as carry over to, to maximal strength and, and peak power, I think there's a lot of benefits to, to sprinting and sprinting the right way for, for athletes of many if not all sports and and a lot of different backgrounds and for athletes kind of just starting in and maybe you know dipping their toe into adding this into their regimes or strength coaches who want to start adding this in is there you know certain rep schemes or distances that you'd start with um, drills that are, are crucial for kind of laying that foundation so the athletes are are doing it the right way right from the get-go um <clears throat> just from like a drill standpoint i think that it's um you know, noteworthy to mention that we don't really think drills are, are going to uh, make you a faster sprinter per se, but what they can do is put things into context. Um, and so you understand certain positions that we want to get you in. Um, and so going through uh, the series that we, we run, which is really, you know, variations of the, the an A walk, a march, a, a skip, I think that helps to uh, put things into a little bit better context. 
I also think from a, a clinical side of things that we have a series called uh, dribble series, which again, allow us to control how much the vertical displacement and how much horizontal force we're able to put in. But because the movements are so uh, controlled and, and a little bit attenuated, it becomes a great rehab tool, but it also becomes a good teaching tool as well. So, so that's where maybe I would start with, um, at least from a clinical standpoint. And then, I think I think it's noteworthy here, um, kind of where we start with our group. Even though they are elite, we start from a very ground level and just build on there. So week one, week two, we're doing wall drills, which uh, has athlete just posted up on the wall, going through different sprint specific positions um finding different joint angles that you're gonna that we're trying to match with uh with what we see once we start to open things up a little bit and as Jad said it's it's just to it's just to introduce some context and make sure that they're they're aware of the positions that we're looking for and i think something like that is a, is a great starting point for anybody um and then it's a matter of just just monitoring volume and intensity uh, i don't think you have to run at maximal speed in order to to reap the benefits uh, especially if, if your mechanics are sound. Um, and then I think it's important that you don't throw too much volume at, at these athletes uh, from a sense of once they get under that fatigue, their mechanics will go out the window, and then you open up uh, an increased risk for injury, um, just just poor mechanics, poor force production, and, and, and all that. So monitoring all those things accordingly and, and starting from the ground up and taking a slow, progressive approach. I will say that sprinting is, is a skill. Uh, and you need a, a fair amount of movement literacy to be able to express that skill. And so just like anything else, um, putting things into context and looking at maybe a dynamic system approach is a crucial point if you want someone to be able to to be able to express maximum velocity sprinting. And, you know, in your opinion, with developing that skill in athletes of team sports and other sports, you know, you mentioned in terms of obviously the, the drills just being a way to integrate a lot of the things from a clinical side and a, a technique side and even down the road a performance side. Um, you know, is that going to benefit the, the team sport athletes from, from you know, being able to implement some of those, those fundamental sort of drills uh, into their regime? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it's something that becomes um, – readily available in their warm-up and so you can easily take some of this stuff and incorporate it into a warm-up and so you're not having to say spend time in developing strictly another uh, biomotor ability away from everything else that they need to do so I mean, with basketball you know they got to work on shooting they got to do you know plays and they have practice when are they going to be able to fit this in in addition to like their their strength room stuff so it's a it's an easy way to manipulate a warm-up um, that will give you you know, again, an ability to express positions and put things into context. Obviously, it will get you know your your warm up component of it. So you actually are going to have something that's beneficial prior to an event. Um, and then it's it's a screen as well, and that's what we use it for. And so um, you're you're able to take away um, based on their positions whether or not they're moving in, in something that's within their bandwidth or not. Right. So there's I think multiple reasons as to why it's uh, it's beneficial to incorporate it. Uh, in, into a team sport fantastic that's a great tip because especially with basketball players i mean in certain sports you can get athletes who can go all the way up to the elite levels without even having to worry about the technique of how they run or how they sprint um obviously which is the total reverse from from being a an elite sprinter 
Um, so it sounds like a great uh, win-win to be able to start for coaches to get some of that into their to their warm-ups. Now, are there any things that you know coaches and strength coaches should consider before uh, adding the sprinting in? Or you know, Jason, you'd mentioned even you know obviously monitoring you know uh, volume and whatnot. But are there th- other things that coaches should consider? Um, I think having an understanding of where someone's, um, I guess, body for, for lack of a better word is that, um, are they, are they going to be able to handle, um, from a tissue standpoint going through a regime? And so it's, it's almost, uh, the art of coaching, if you will, right? Like you, you have to have, um, some inclination of knowing how their system is going to react to this. Because again, it's, it's, you know, sprinting is no different than, uh, in my mind, going through um, some of these you know, power development exercises, which are quite taxing, uh, especially if you you know just jump into it right away. So, you always you want to make sure that you you've done something to uh, qualify uh, that the person has um, this physiological buffer zone to be able to go through um, a session that's going to be relatively intense. Terrific, guys. I uh, I want to just shift gears here a little bit because we're gonna have you know again some trainers and some just fitness enthusiasts who are getting more and more into sprinting. We see it all the time now on the on the blogs, magazines, articles, etc. And I know you guys work on the elite end of things, um, but if we talk about just the average client who's trying to lose that twenty pounds, maybe they have a beer belly, that kind of deal. Um, and typically, you see a lot of these people doing just longer bouts of steady state uh, type work. You know, is that is, is sprinting and some of the high intensity interval training do you guys think that's going to be a win for them are the things that they should consider before they jump right into that um yeah i, I would I, I think that if, if we put you through uh, our warm-up uh that would be more than enough of a work <laughs> for most people to be honest and it's not just the general general pop for that like we've implemented this with like football teams and you know by the end of it they're just exhausted uh, or when we have our apprenticeship coaching programs or performance therapy programs and we have visiting um uh, visiting colleagues who go through their warm-up they're, they're just they're they're done by it right so it's it's uh, it's something that i think would be a good starting point and it's you're able to control uh, a lot more with it especially with joint velocity and joint ranges of motion and so we can intelligently start to program how we're going to get someone up to say maximum velocity sprinting but again, if the goal is just to, you know, um, say it's fat loss, I still think that the warm-up in itself is something that's going to help you uh, increase that, you know, uh, epoch effect that, you, that you're looking for with some of this high-intensity uh, work that most people do. Yeah, that epoch for those who just a quick, you know, that's an exercise post-oxygen consumption. That's the afterburn you get from doing more intense work. Um, and of course, when we look at the body um, composition of sprinters, whether they're female or male. Obviously, we see very lean, muscular body types. So, you know, adding more of this type of training in for the average person, you know, is that going to help them to put on some muscle and to to find that six pack that's buried down there somewhere? Uh, <laughs> I guess depends would be my answer to that one. I mean, there's tons of different factors that we we need to um, look into for that. And again, that will depend on the individual body type. But um, at the end of the day, I think that going through um, something like this, you'll, you'll develop um, general strength qualities um, and different, different perhaps uh, tissue qualities that will set the stage for, for you to continue to you know, progress through whatever weight room uh, work that you want to do. So I think, again, it's a, a beneficial thing. Um, 
simple as a 15 or 30 minute uh, warm up um, that could you know serve a lot of benefit in the in the long term. I think if nothing else, it's a it's a new stimulus for them. It's something that a lot of people probably general population at least probably don't do very often or very much of. So uh, maybe they're using different muscle groups. Maybe uh, they're challenging their nervous system in a different way. Um, but to, to go out and sprint for them is is a different challenge that, that their body has to adapt to. So if nothing else, I think it just provides that new stimulus and uh, an additional opportunity to lean out, lose some weight, whatever their goal might be. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, with patients who come in here, I mean, I'm downtown Toronto and we have you know, some people come in and they've been obviously working at a desk for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And sometimes you ask them when the last time they ran full out and some people might tell you it was 15 or 20 years ago. So it's amazing how it's obviously from a health perspective influential on so many aspects of, you know, blood sugar control and hormone regulation and, and all these things. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Now, if someone is sitting all day, if the average person's, you know, spending eight or 10 or 12 hours in a chair and then they get up and just try to get on the track, like, uh, like an Andre de Grasse, are there things that they should consider around, uh, you know, mobility or certain muscle groups? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that you, you want to have, um, a level of mobility uh, and tissue extensibility for sure. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're probably looking at a hamstring injury, to be completely frank, if you try to go all out on, on day one. So like anything else, there's um, there's certain checks that you, you should be able to have, I think. Um, a level of uh, even just general strength so that you have some stiffness and some compliance through tissue uh, can go a long way. Um, obviously, you want to have a requisite um, uh, mobility level so you can express full joint excursion uh, but still have the stability to control that range of motion <clears throat> so again like, like anything else when, when you're going to uh, try to develop a new skill um, it's beneficial to to make sure you have all the the requisites kind of in line and checked before you before you decide to you know try to go all out on something and for the average person there with kind of tight hips and maybe a weak or lower back are there certain you know certain movements or things that you would you would emphasize? Um, yeah, I, I would say that you want to have, um, at, at a very minimum, the ability to disassociate uh, hip from from your femur. Uh, what we normally see, at least from a clinical standpoint, is people no longer ha have that ability to, to really hinge at, at their hips and they start to uh, use their low back. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad, but if that's uh, the only way you can express movement, um, your movement variability is actually quite low, uh, and it, it's maybe a potential for uh, a, you know, an injury mechanism to kind of occur. Uh, and of course, injury being multifactorial, maybe that's one of the things as to as why that happens. So, just having a good program that kind of addresses that and and starts to move away from uh, you know the stereotypical body part to to more of a movement based one, um, and then continuing to to work on that and then you get a little bit more specific, right? And you can start to look at maybe, you know, power generation at single versus double, uh, whether you're a pusher or you're a puller, uh, you can start to look at those things, but just having a requisite, um, uh, you know, capacity to do certain movements, I think is, is a key thing. One, uh, one bit I'll add to this whole, this whole topic, um, the dribbles that jazz alluded to, uh, or mentioned in the start, would, would possibly serve as a great place to start for, for anybody with the general population. And our dribble series or our dribble progression is essentially just uh, truncated range of motion running 
slightly more specific to, to maximum velocity upright sprinting, I would say. But uh, pretty much just starts uh, over the ankle. Then we progress up to over the calf and over the knee. So it's a cyclical motion, um, truncated range of motion. Introduces a, a lot of opportunity for the uh, athlete or individual to feel the ground contact and what that's going to be like. And if they slowly work up through bigger ranges of motion, again, over the calf and then progressing to the knee, might serve as a good progression into the uh, tissue extensibility and different range of motions that the Jazz is talking about. Terrific. That's great, guys. Have you uh, any chance there's some videos there that we could post to the page that hosts this uh, talk for, for people at home to, to have a look at? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll send some across. And then uh, we also post a lot on the uh, Altus social media sites. So you'll be able to find a lot there, but we'll send some specific uh, to you guys. Fabulous, guys. This is uh, fantastic, man. Time flies here when we're talking to, to the experts. Can you guys, before we wrap up here, can you guys give us a bit of a glimpse for what the 2017 looks like for the Altus performance? Uh, you know, what does the schedule look like or what are some of the things that you guys are gearing up for? Oh, it looks good, man. We, uh, we're in week 11 right now and, and training has been pretty solid across the board. So I think there's a lot of excitement around Altus for the upcoming season. Um, obviously it culminates at the end of the year with world championships in London. Uh, gosh, I think it's early August, might be late July. Um, we'll have some people kicking off indoor meets, uh, starting next month in January. Um, most, at least, uh, most of the folks that jazz and I work with will hold off a little bit more until the outdoor season begins. Uh, possibly as late as April, um, but a couple of meets here in the States, uh, some Cana Canadian meets, and then a handful of meets in Europe, just trying to tune up, get ready for for nationals in the early summer, and then worlds in late summer. Fantastic. Well, guys, um, what's the best way, you know, for, for listeners who want to kind of keep keep tabs on what you guys are doing down there, uh, what's the best way to, uh, to connect with you guys uh, on the interwebs there or, or Twitter, et cetera? Uh, yeah, so like, like Jason kind of alluded to, uh, we try to have a, a strong social media presence so you can follow us on Facebook, um, on Twitter, Altus World, uh, and then on Instagram as well. Um, in addition to that, we have our website. Feel free to, to visit that. Uh, and really just, just connect with us. Um, if you see something cool uh, on our Instagram or one of our Twitter posts, go ahead and leave a comment. We, we love to have dialogue. Um, selfishly, I think we learn uh, sometimes more from the people who follow us than what we give out to them. So, uh, but it's, it's, for us, it's all about communication and, and where we're going to learn from. So we love, love, absolutely love to interaction with, um, <clears throat> coaches and therapists and really anyone who's interested in what we're doing. That's phenomenal. We'll definitely put those links, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram on the page as well. Um, and I've saved the toughest question here for last jazz. I know the coffee's pretty good here in Toronto. What's, what's going on with the situation down there in, in, in Phoenix? Are you, are you getting your hands on some good stuff or, or what's going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. For anyone who's, who's coming to Phoenix, I think spot you want to go to have a little bit of a picture is a place called Mavericks. They serve ritual beans. Um, and the cool thing about it is actually two of our athletes, uh, are, are the owners of this coffee spot. So it's become, uh, a little bit of a famous spot for, for us here at Altus. And so that, that's where I would be at. And I'd say that's probably better coffee than what I've had in Toronto. So I'm just going <laughs> to go ahead and say that now. Nice. Throwing down the gauntlet. That's great. Well, people can get a great coffee there, and they can probably see some uh, future stars and current stars there as well fueling up for their workouts. 
Perfect, guys. Thanks so much for, for coming out today and joining us. For all those listeners, uh, thanks as well. Uh, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Uh, give us a review and five-star rating on iTunes. And, of course, you can always join the email list at drbubs.com. Until next time, everyone, have a great day. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.